Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and I'm really excited to bring you my conversation today with Dr. Alyssa Vela. Dr. Vela is a fellow health psychologist. She is an assistant professor of surgery and psychiatry at the Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. She earned her PhD in health psychology at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where she studied culturally adaptive lifestyle interventions for women with disordered eating and diabetes. She then went on to complete an internship and residency in health psychology at Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA and a fellowship in clinical health psychology with an emphasis in medical education at the Michigan Center for Advanced Psychology Training in affiliation with Michigan State College of Human Medicine. So she also completed her board certification in lifestyle medicine. So we're going to be diving into what lifestyle medicine is today. And I'm really excited to talk about that topic and how it applies to everything we talk about on this podcast. So Alyssa's main area of research and clinical interest is lifestyle interventions for cardiometabolic health. And she has a strong passion for helping people change their lifestyles and health behaviors so that they can live their best lives. She's also really passionate about addressing health disparities, providing culturally sensitive care to all patients. She's actively involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion work and education at Northwestern as well. So what uh, you can expect in this interview and why I'm so excited about it is because one of my goals, I would say, on this podcast and also just professionally is to make sure that we're having productive conversations with people in different spaces because As you all know, we are a very polarized country in many, many ways, and it is very, very problematic. It's problematic because it doesn't offer an ability to have conversations where we might disagree or not agree 100% and where we can kind of see different perspectives. We are rarely doing that, unfortunately. Um, And really on this podcast, I wouldn't say I bring people on that I disagree with per se. I mean, I guess I'm sure we do disagree. All the guests, I'm sure, disagree with me in a variety of points and and likewise. But 
my point is, as much as I very much believe in and really buy into frameworks provided by Health at Every Size and Intuitive Eating, I want to make sure that we are having conversations with other uh, camps of folks, if you will, um, because particularly in medicine, if we don't bring people into the conversation, then no, really no benefit happens. And and really my experience with, uh, I've had the privilege of getting to meet a lot of different people in in the field of psychology, nutrition, and medicine being the main ones. And there, people are very open to these discussions. And even though there may be points of disagreement where everyone wants the same things for their clients or their patients, whatever you want to call it, they want to help them feel better and thrive in their life. And obviously there are systems that work against people feeling better, but individual providers, well, the ones I talk to anyway, that's what they want. And so it's just a matter of having these productive conversations about where we might be getting in the way of that and how we can work together to improve. So that was my long-winded way of saying this is an area of passion for me, and um, and I'm really excited to talk to you about, with Dr. Vela, about health psychology, behavioral medicine, those two terms we'll talk about can be used interchangeably, and also the field of lifestyle medicine, and within that, the idea of nutritional psychiatry. We don't delve into this a ton, but we do talk about it as an emerging field, and so this interview, we're going to talk a little bit about the impact of nutrition on mental and emotional well-being and how this might apply to you within sort of a non-diet framework. So I'm really excited about this. We also talk about some of the pros and cons of thinking about food as medicine. And we talk as well about you know research and how it does and does not always apply to diverse samples. So we delve into a lot today. I think um, you're going to come away with some interesting new perspectives, and I'm really excited to get started. Do you ever worry that you're wasting your life? I definitely did. In fact, I wrote that in my journal many years ago when I was in the middle of the diet binge roller coaster ride. I woke up every day thinking about food, my body, and what I would eat that day to quote unquote be healthy. The notebooks I had filled with calories and points could fill up a spare bedroom. Social events and vacations immediately prompted the thought, they will notice I've gained weight, or I need to lose weight by then. Deep down, I knew I wasn't living life the way I wanted to, but I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. If this is you, I want you to imagine what it would feel like to feel empowered in your body and proud of your choices on a consistent basis. I promise you this is possible and it isn't too late. You see, dieting steals our motivation. It makes us ineffective and lose faith in ourselves. It keeps us spinning our wheels in a system that was never built to work. If you're ready to take that first step to motivating yourself with what matters to you, download my Cultivate Powerful Motivation Guide, which is quite beautifully designed if I say so myself, and walk through the simple three steps to cultivate motivation that works for you in 15 minutes or less. You'll get a simple formula to write one sentence at the end that you can use to motivate yourself on a daily basis. You can write this sentence on your bathroom mirror, put it on the background of your phone, or just read it and repeat it in your mind consistently. Look, 
I know how much it hurts to live a life worrying that you're missing out, not stepping into the person that you were truly meant to be. You can listen to the podcast all day, but taking that first step, putting pen to paper or typing on your phone, is required for true lasting change. It's time to start living, my friend. So it's 100% free. What are you waiting for? Grab your free guide today at drhondorp.com forward slash motivate. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash motivate. And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and corresponding blog are for informational and educational purposes only and should not ever be construed as any form of professional advice. If you are struggling in any of these areas or trying to figure out how this applies to your specific situation, always consult a professional for guidance. All right, let's dive in. Hi, Alyssa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to dive into a lot of really cool topics with you today. But before we do that, can you share more with our listeners a little bit about your background in health psychology and lifestyle medicine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I am a clinical health psychologist by training, um, which if you're not familiar means I earned a PhD in health psychology at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Um, And happy to to clarify kind of what even health psychology is at at that at some point if that would be helpful. but basically did my PhD studying uh, lifestyle interventions for Latina women with binge eating disorder and and really focusing on um, kind of disordered eating behaviors and type two diabetes and essentially addressing the the complexities of lifestyle and of eating behaviors and, and helping people change their health behaviors. So that's kind of my background educationally. I did a, an internship or residency at the Cleveland VA, and then I did a clinical health psychology um, fellowship up in Flint, Michigan, associated with Michigan State. And now I am faculty at Northwestern University um, in the Feinberg School of Medicine. I work in the Department of Surgery in cardiac behavioral medicine, which is a mouthful in and of itself. And so I work primarily with individuals with cardiovascular conditions, particularly heart failure or folks who need advanced heart failure therapies, such as a heart transplant. And I do pre-surgical evaluations. I help people improve their candidacy for surgery, for example, changing their diet, quitting smoking, um, managing stress, addressing social support, as well as help people cope with lengthy hospitalizations and just the nature of surgery. Um, I'm also pretty involved in the lifestyle medicine world. I became board certified in lifestyle medicine through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine in 2020, uh, which was great. And I'm I'm involved in uh, some of the member interest groups within the organization and have done some presentations and stuff too. So Um, I think lifestyle medicine and health psychology overlap quite a bit, and it's really great to be involved with a professional organization that is um, a bunch of interdisciplinary sort of folks. So it's mostly medical doctors, but lots of registered dietitians and social workers and mental health providers and physical therapists and kind of uh, anybody who's involved in medicine and is just interested in lifestyle. And so it's a really cool place to be 
um, with people that are thinking along the same lines of focusing on lifestyle factors for prevention and treatment or even reversal of medical conditions um, as opposed to kind of traditional medications, that sort of thing. That's awesome. And you may not know this. I don't know this offhand. Do you know how new of a field lifestyle medicine is? It feels new to me, but. Yeah, it is. It's definitely new um, in terms of kind of the, the actual organized part of the organization, if you will, Mm -hmm. obviously the theories are, are nothing new. These are longstanding sorts of things. There's certainly overlap with other organizations and groups such as preventative medicine and integrative medicine. Um, but the American college of professional, or excuse me, the American college of lifestyle medicine has been around, I want to say like 10 to 15 years. So Mm -hmm. fairly new. Mm -hmm. And the board certification process has been around for, I want to say four years now. So definitely newer um, organization, but I think was really created because people felt like there was something missing in terms of that, that, that focus on lifestyle specifically, um, and really applying evidence-based interventions, evidence-based theories of health behavior change to help people live their best lives, um, and, and really applying that science. Yeah, nice. And before we dive into a little bit more about health psych and lifestyle medicine, can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey, how you ended up in this field? Yeah, sure. So like a lot of other people, I always wanted to be a doctor. I always thought I would become a medical doctor. That was sort of the game plan from the get-go, went to college, started pre-med, and really hated chemistry, really loved psychology and and started to get immersed in some of the health psychology research that one of the faculty at my university was doing, um, kind of learning about that. I took a health psych class, loved it. And, and it really just spoke to my passion and interests of, of lifestyle, of health behavior. I really wanted to work with patients and help them change their diet, to increase their physical activity, to manage stress, to do all those sort of behavioral things, um, not just prescribe medications. Not to say that's what all physicians do, but sort of in my head in college, I was thinking like, I don't want to just prescribe meds. I want to be involved in the health behavior change. Um, And as I learned more about psychology and health psychology, that just seemed like the best fit for me. Um, I grew up in a family with several health conditions, primarily diabetes. Um, So was sort of aware of insulin and dietary restrictions and some of those sorts of things from from a pretty early age, um, as well as navigating the healthcare system um, as non-English speaking folks uh, being my grandparents. So was just very interested in healthcare and sort of access and and seeing the impact of mental health on managing serious and chronic health conditions and and the family roles and all of that sort of stuff. And so that sort of came together to to push me to pursue health psychology as opposed to going to medical school. Um, Sort of uh, by coincidence, ended up at UNC Charlotte with my advisor um, who was interested in working with me because I spoke Spanish and, and she did research with Latinas. And so it was just sort of a, a, a good fit that I ended up there for my master's and then stayed on for my PhD and was really able to kind of combine some of my interests um, as I moved towards where I am now. Nice. So you're, you said your grandparents were, were they 
like first language Spanish and didn't speak mm -hmm. any English. So they were trying, you were watching them try to navigate the healthcare system. And I'm sure a lot of challenges with that. Yeah, absolutely. So my grandpa actually spoke quite good English, especially okay. when he was working um, in the Detroit area. But my grandma, when they immigrated from Mexico, stayed at home. She was a teacher in Mexico, but didn't work once they moved to the United States um, when my dad was younger. And so, you know, she wasn't speaking English as much so she could speak some. Um, but, you know, when we're thinking about interactions with our medical doctors, there's often really difficult language that even if English is your first language to make sense of. Um, yeah. And they think, you know, especially when somebody speaks enough English, I think that interpreters are really underutilized that they, you know, there's just sort of this assumption of like, well, they understand enough. And so I think there's a lot of challenges and barriers to navigating healthcare when English is not your first language, at least in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. and so that's just something that I've been aware of for a really long time. And, and I, I think has struck up interest and passion for myself. And, and I know for my sister, who's in medical school right now and actually worked as a bilingual scribe. Um, and so that, that certainly impacts how I approach clinical care. Yeah. So much work to be done in that area. Even if we think about like the topics we're going to talk about today and how, I don't even just like a, the word intuitive eating or like all these different mm -hmm. words that people have a hard time wrapping their head around without mm -hmm. any language barrier. Right. And, and obviously within medicine, there's a whole bunch of other complicated lingo that would fall into that category of like mm -hmm. insulin resistance, or just, it's making me think as you're talking and how that's so important. So yeah, thank you for sharing that because it's clearly very needed. And I know we're going to come back to some of your interest in like culturally adapted mm -hmm. treatments and for binge eating specifically. And, um, I'm getting a glimpse into why that's probably really a passion area for you. So that's really cool. Thank you. Absolutely. So let's, um, let's jump back to this idea of, um, kind of health psychology and why we know as health psychologists, this field is super cool and important, but maybe kind of defining what that is and, and why um, we need it. Yeah. So health psychology is, or behavioral medicine, they're technically different terms, but that's sort of used interchangeably. Um, so I'll just throw that out there. It's really, it's really focused on um, primarily patient populations, groups, or individuals who have some sort of serious or chronic health condition or some sort of risk for a condition. And it's addressing the intersection between the biological, the genetic, what's actually going on physically, the psychological. So that's all of the mental health, health beliefs, how somebody thinks about their health and well being or, or their health behaviors, all of those sorts of things, and the social. Um, so social support, family, friends, where somebody lives, geography. So health psychology loves the biopsychosocial model, which is what I was just touching on. And it's really about those intersecting pieces um, and, and really an intersectional approach that it's not just the physical or the psychological or the social, but it's, it's the culmination and it's the overlap. So really applying that model to, to thinking about health from a more holistic perspective. Um, and as a clinical health psychologist specifically, you know, I work with patients to address 
again, that whole host of factors and thinking about how can I help people change their health behaviors, improve their health behaviors, um, address their mental health. So whether we're talking about symptoms of anxiety, depression, um, stress being a big one and, and thinking about the relationship between um, inflammation that comes as an effect of stress and how that takes a toll on the body as well as the brain, which is of course part of the body um, and, and can result in both physical and psychological um, symptoms, which then impacts relationships and how all of these sorts of things are connected. And so I really work with with folks to address these health behaviors, to help them make changes, um, to address their mood and mental health and, and just you know, encourage social support and interaction and communication with others and all of those sorts of things. And I really take a, a sort of values quality of life approach to my practice. And so as a health psychologist, I like to say that my overall goal is to help people um, change their health behaviors or engage in, in the types of behaviors and thinking patterns that support their values or what they care about most um, in a way that ultimately supports their quality of life. So that's what we all want is good quality of life is, is to live a life consistent with what we care about, with who we care about. Um, and so thinking about how health behaviors can really be leveraged to support just good quality of life. Nice. Yeah. And you had mentioned sort of like often health psychology can be focused on certain populations or certain conditions or diseases, but what strikes mm -hmm. me, and I'm, I'm sure that this really doesn't get missed, but it's like, we all have a relationship with like health behaviors, our body, how we mm -hmm. think and feel about it. And so it's like across the board, like who can't benefit from health psychology, right? <laughs> all, Absolutely. All humans. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and one of the things I've been thinking about lately and, and kind of talking about with some of my students too, is that I think health psychologists are, are really critical when we're available to fill, kind of fill a gap right? So you might go see your doctor and you have, um, you know, a cardiovascular condition, or maybe you, you have some risk factors and there's some genetic risk for heart disease in your family, for example. And so what does the doctor tell you? Like quit smoking, eat better, um, do more exercise. And then they, they, they may send you on your way, or they may even give you a referral to a registered dietitian who provides, you know, really wonderful expert information. But oftentimes what gets missed is translating that information into practice in a sustainable way, uh, a way that is appropriate for that person, for their family, for their cultural beliefs and values, for their circumstances, you know, socioeconomic, financial, all of those sorts of things. Um, and I think that's where health psychologists can really leverage their expertise is, is filling those gaps as well as doing research to come up with, with evidence-based ways to kind of fill those gaps. Yeah, and even just like, how does this new diagnosis or new information affect your sense of self and your identity and your beliefs about your body? And how does that intersect with all the things that you just said? Absolutely. A lot to unpack many times, I think, anytime we get new information about our bodies and how they're functioning yeah. or things that aren't going as well. So, mm -hmm. and how would you say, can we build a little bit on this concept of lifestyle medicine and mm -hmm. kind of how this, like you said, it really goes hand in hand with health psychology, but it's more of an interdisciplinary field with bringing together all these different types of individuals. So I, you are quite involved with that. I'd love to hear kind of what you're seeing there and, and how these fields are working together. 
Yeah. You know, I think, as you mentioned, lifestyle medicine as a field is, is newer, it's burgeoning and which I think is amazing. It's so great to see all of these interdisciplinary folks within the medical community, paying attention to these sorts of things, you know, as a health psychologist, I'm a little bit biased in the sense that I think a lot of it is health psychology or behavioral medicine and pulling from those literatures, um, those, those science bases um, and others and, and really encouraging other types of providers to apply some of this information. And so I think the idea is, you know, really translating some of this science and some of the work that health psychologists and behavioral medicine practitioners have been doing for a long time in other types of settings by other providers, you know, using some of the behavior change science and theories, um, spending more time thinking about how can we really focus and, and leverage lifestyle factors. So the core lifestyle factors being diet, physical activity, sleep, stress management, healthy relationships, and then reduction of um, risky substance use, primarily tobacco, but also alcohol, marijuana, other drugs, you know, substances sort of in general. And so how can we, we be leveraging those sorts of um, factors and treatments as sort of like first line interventions, not necessarily to replace medications are sort of Western medicine, if you will, but to, to complement them, to, um, to encourage prevention, whether that's primary prevention or secondary prevention, like when somebody already has a condition and they're trying to prevent complications from that condition, such as diabetes and, um, and just really thinking about the, the environment and some of the things that have changed, particularly in the United States with regards to the types of foods that we're exposed to, how sedentary we are, you know, how much stressed we are by how much we all work and, um, you know, how expensive things are, especially, you know, during the pandemic. And, and so really um, prioritizing those, those lifestyle factors. Yeah. And it, I'm wondering what you, you listen to the podcast on and off when you have time, which I appreciate. And I've appreciated your feedback there. And obviously we talk a lot about moving away from like the diet mentality shoulds and, and what mm -hmm. have you seen within the lifestyle medicine field that's doing that well, and maybe not as well. I, I'm just curious, maybe what your experience has been of that so far, because I have my own experiences, right? But yeah, that's a great question. I think it varies a little bit, um, mm -hmm. of course, as it always does, right? Yeah. You know, I think the, the official approach of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I don't want to speak on their behalf, but my understanding of the official approach is plant predominant. Um, mm -hmm. So not necessarily any specific type of diet. There are a lot of lifestyle medicine practitioners and kind of like pretty famous big wig people out there um, who are whole foods plant-based, meaning absolutely no animal products, very, very low fat. Um, mm -hmm. I, I do sometimes struggle with um, what feels to me as, as kind of a judgment when people aren't willing to do that, or that maybe, you know, doesn't fit with their sort of cultural or familiar background or beliefs or their food access. Mm -hmm. um, again, not from the organization, but more of on an individual kind of level. Um, yeah. But I, I sort of like the idea of of no specific diet. I consider myself to be what I like to say, a diet agnostic. I, I don't really mm -hmm. believe in any diet in particular. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I appreciate based on the science, the idea of kind of a plant predominant, less processed um, 
focused diet. So just trying to get most of your nutrients and calories from whole foods, plants, but also recognizing that flexibility is important and, and cultural sensitivity is important. Yeah, I think, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I do think that often can get lost. And I've struggled with this on the podcast of like how much I've kind of just fixed so far, just mostly shared my personal experience, although I've had some experts come on in these areas. But this idea of like, when we step back and look at the literature base, it's very strongly supportive of plant forward, plant predominant eating patterns for like pretty much all conditions. And yet so many people are still given misinformation about this. Mm -hmm. And it's this balance of like, how do we get accurate information for people without making it too complicated or too simplified, right? Like just Mm. eat more plants. It's like, that's not always helpful, (laughs) but I, I always, I don't know what your thoughts are about that. I struggle with that. I do think lifestyle medicine as a field is trying to move towards like supportive discussions about autonomy but I I also have that strong Mm -hmm. reaction of whenever it whenever it feels too rigid or anytime it feels Mm -hmm. judgy like uh that's not helpful (laughs) like who's gonna like no (laughs) it doesn't matter what it is even if it's judgy about you need to be doing plant predominant not helpful Mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely yeah I think that's a struggle I mean I think the strength is that just more types of medical providers are even having a conversation about diet. So I think that's the really cool thing, but yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there's, um, everybody's biased. I think everybody's Mm -hmm. judgmental. I, I, I think many of us try very hard, but we're not necessarily good at kind of taking this step back and appreciating other factors or other lenses. Um, you know, most people that are going to be working, in medical professions, particularly doctors are, you know, upper middle class, they have resources, they can shop at Whole Foods or wherever. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just not the case for most people. And so I think we have to sort of recognize um, individual differences and preferences and, and really meeting people where they're at. And I do think that gets missed sometimes. Um, in, in these conversations, I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like there's, and I guess this sort of relates to my other question about this idea of like food as medicine. That's something I hear a decent amount in sort of the lifestyle medicine type spaces. And um, I'm curious if like, in terms of like, the pros and cons of, of thinking about food as medicine for different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, this is something I've been sort of mulling over. And, and I definitely need to give it more thought. I on one hand, I really agree with and buy into that idea of, of food as medicine. I think food has a lot of opportunity. I think the food choices that we make and the foods that we have access to can really help us thrive or can make us not feel so good. But I think there's also something to be said about the, again, kind of the emotional, familial, social, like memory aspect of food too, right? Like my mm-hmm. family makes um, ravioli from, from scratch every single year and we have nice. them for Christmas. Um, yeah. And like our ravioli filled with cheese, like the healthiest meal ever, perhaps not, but like we make them from scratch. It's a whole event to make them. It's a special thing we do every year as a family. Um, they're delicious. Like they're, they're pretty simple ingredients. And so, you know, 
somebody might disagree that that's a good choice, but it, it's a good choice for our family in the context of that holiday, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I think there does need to be some some flexibility. I know there's, um, I haven't read it, but I, I saw on social media, I think his name is Joshua Woolrich. Um, he's a physician out of the UK and he just put out a book kind of like completely against the idea of food as medicine. And, and I think my impression was sort of pushing against some of that judgment that comes along with the idea of food as medicine. And so I think that's still a, a work in progress. I think we need to strike some sort of balance between the idea that we can choose foods that really support us. And and I really like the idea of making food choices that help us feel like we're thriving to the extent that we are able to make those choices. Mm -hmm. Um, But also recognizing that that food is not just, it's not just nutrition, right? Like there's other food is cultural and, and it's so many other things. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And I, I think the way I think about it, I map everything back onto self-determination theory because that just like framework makes a lot of sense to my brain. But like food as medicine could be like, I have to take my medicine and I don't want to. And like, oh, I have to swallow this big horse pill and I'm so sick of this medication. Like, okay, that's probably not going to be very sustainable. Or food mm. as medicine can be like, I am making the best choices for myself and my family and I'm helping my body to thrive in a really positive way. And I think that- mm both the statements could be interpreted differently. And I guess that's my take on like most things. It's like, how does the individual Mm -hmm. think about it in that way? And yeah, I do think food is medicine many times. It's a well-intended statement, but it can be interpreted Mm -hmm. as you should be taking your medicine clearly. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, then that's a problem. Then you're non-compliant. And I say that in quotes because I do not use the term non-compliant. Oh my gosh. Yes. Mm -hmm. That is not helpful. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think, I think it always stems back to meeting people where they're at. Right. So for some people, food as medicine might be super empowering and for other people, food as medicine might feel, um, not supportive and could even be harmful or detrimental, especially if somebody has some disordered eating behaviors or, um, unhealthy relationship with food and eating. Yeah. yeah it, I think it pressure. just depends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to dive into this idea of nutrition as it relates to mental health and psychiatry, because I know this is an area that you know a lot about and want like to talk about. And I think it's super cool. And most people probably don't know a lot about it. So can you tell the listeners maybe a little bit of background about what, what that concept means and why you think more people need to know about it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really emerging area. There's not a ton of research that's been done yet. Um, I think we're only starting to see early chatters. Um, I did a a certificate course last year in my (laughs) COVID free time. It's like funny to think about all these things that I took on in 2020, but um, not going anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it was fun. So I I took a, a certificate course on nutritional psychology, 
Um, so there's certainly some people doing some work in that area, but I'd say even more so what I'm seeing is, is a, an adjacent field of nutritional psychiatry. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is research and clinical practice, again, mostly from psychiatrists who are really trying to study and employ the idea of how, you know, sort of food as medicine-esque, um, but how can we use dietary interventions to support mental health, to treat mental health, to even um, reduce medications in some cases. Um, and there's lots of different sort of paths that are being explored. And I think that's where the research is really just starting to emerge, but we're starting to have more and more science on, um, again, inflammation, which I mentioned and thinking about, um, the gut brain access and um, the microbiome and how the microbiome is related to, and that that connection between the gut and brain is related to that inflammation or is related to some of those neurotransmitters that are really critical for mental health and thinking more about science of the brain and science of the gut and, and some of those more kind of um, organ specific and, and connection within the body things that I think have not always been a focus of psychiatry and psychology um, as much because our understanding of the brain is still so, so minimal. Um, I mean, we know, we know quite a bit, but we also sort of know nothing uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to cognitive science, I think, and brain science. Um, yeah, so there's some really cool emerging research studying different types of dietary interventions. As you can imagine, diet is uh, pretty difficult to study um, unless you kind of like have people locked away somewhere for lack of a better term, because there's just so many variables and so many things that can impact it. Um, but there have been some studies where people were in like a, like a long-term residential hospital setting and, and they tested the Mediterranean diet. So really thinking about lots of plants, healthy fats, um, low processed foods, um, you know, the keto diet, vegan diets, all of those sorts of things. Um, and just trying to understand how could we leverage diet, dietary interventions as a treatment for anything from symptoms of anxiety and depression to serious mental illness, like schizophrenia. And it sounds like it's pretty new. So like, we don't know, we don't have any like super solid, like this is recommended for this yet because it's too new or is there some of that yet? You know, I think we're starting to see some of the, the bigger people, at least in nutritional psychology, excuse me, nutritional psychiatry in particular, kind of say what is recommended. I think depending on who you ask, the science is not quite there. I definitely say it's more of an emerging science. Mm -hmm. um, but for example, Harvard has a nutritional psychiatry institute and they are providing nutritional psychiatry services um, I believe her name is Uma Naidu, um, is the psychiatrist there who's doing research and working with patients. And there's some other, uh, Drew Ramsey is another name. He's in New York in private practice. And I forget what um, institution he's affiliated with. Okay. Um, but there's definitely people that are, are, are starting to do this work. And I think right now the recommendations are are pretty simple, right? So I keep touching on inflammation. So thinking mm -hmm. about um, foods that are less inflammatory to, to reduce the inflammation in the body. So we know that like red meat is pretty inflammatory and we, we know that dairy is pretty inflammatory for most people. So again, that's maybe where a more plant predominant diet would be recommended. Um, or I'm trying to think what else I've seen. 
that's probably one of the, you know, cutting out alcohol and um, kind of some, you know, reducing uh, sugar intake, all of those sorts of kind of basic things that we hear about in the context of nutritional recommendations anyway, but, but more specific to, to brain and mental health. Yeah, I, I like that. And I think with anything like it, it's important to be mindful of the food relationship and like noticing that and not being too rigid, but at the same time, having that information or at least noticing like for yourself, because most of this is going to be hard to study an individual like forever, mm-hmm. right? Because it's so hard to like, like you said, unless they're in long-term residential and that's a separate population anyway, this is always going to be hard to study. So I think mm-hmm. the empowerment piece comes from the individual being able to say like, when I eat this way, my mood improves, or when I eat this way, I feel more focused at work. And that's going to be a much better motivator that's inter- internal and intrinsic mm-hmm. and autonomous mm-hmm. versus when I eat this way, I lose weight or I don't. And that's where I think the weight loss focus has just blinded us to any other good things about habit change. And so that's where I think this field could be very cool if used the right way. And in, mm-hmm. if not really, if we can like remove it from the weight piece, because that's where like the concept of intuitive eating is like that is that it trusts your intuition about like what mm-hmm. feels right for your body and your brain and yourself <laughs> and your life. And so, um, I actually watched, uh, I use the forks over knives meal planner and so I'm on their email list. So I get like mm-hmm. these webinars and I watched this really interesting one with this guy who had lost a lot of weight and kept it off, which is really rare. So I was like, Oh, I'm interested. I'm going to listen to this. And I, he's probably kind of a big deal and I don't know if he'd ever come on the podcast. So maybe I'll ask him because the way he describes his changes are very autonomous and he describes right. a substance abuse history. So a lot of mental health, anxiety, and depression, as well as, um, abusing, uh, I think Adderall. And then he was doing research on like whole food, plant-based diet as a treatment, but it wasn't controlled research. So, mm-hmm. so this idea of like, it's really hard to create a control group uh, for yes. this, but but he, at least the way he described his personal journey, he, it felt very autonomous, assuming he was being honest with his motives and like, he's like, this is the best choice for me and my recovery. And this is the way I feel best. And he ended up doing a pretty rigid diet. Right. But mm-hmm. it's about how the individual feels about it. So anyway, I just think that that was kind of an interesting thing that I thought of when you're thinking about mm-hmm. this field of nutritional nutrition impact on mood can move us away mm-hmm. from shaming body blame stuff if we do it right yeah absolutely what a good example and and I think to your point that touches on what you said earlier right that that those individual perceptions those beliefs like what motivates us what we care about what we value like that the the why is what's really really critical right like Mm -hmm. we have to want to do it for for ourselves and for the you know for reasons that support our own values and interests and that the external stuff might work briefly, but, uh, it never persists. Right. Exactly. Um, can you, I'm, I'm really interested to hear your, your experiences with culturally adapted treatments, because this has been an area of focus for you for a while. So, um, yeah, what do people need to know about the importance of this work and maybe, I don't know if you have any examples of like where we might be failing people if we don't culturally adapt, right? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah. You know, and I've probably said it, you know, several times already now, like it's, it's, I think it again, speaks to this idea of meeting people where they're at and, and part of meeting people where they're at, whether we're talking about an individual level, you know, I'm the psychologist working with the patient versus, um, you know, more research and sort of like higher level population level, um, sort of data. I think that the cultural adaptation piece is really important. So what we know from many years of science and research is that uh, most research is not representative. Um, there's major, major gaps in terms of having representative samples and research. And, and this is a, a continues to be a big focus. Um, we're working on a piece right now advocating for, um, you know, having more diversity in in research and treatment of cardiovascular conditions to ultimately reduce reduce health disparities. So there's just so much work to be to be done in this area. But it's really about thinking that um, you know again we don't have enough diversity in research and and. In my background of binge eating disorder in particular, most of the research had been done with white women. Um, and obviously there's a lot of, um, of heterogeneity amongst white women, but there's other sort of cultural considerations to take into account when we're thinking about eating and disordered eating behaviors. And, and that's sort of how I ended up um, doing research with Latinas in particular. So an example I can give of the importance of cultural adaptation would be some of the work that I did in graduate school. Um, so we, uh, developed and studied lifestyle interventions for binge eating disorder in Latinas. We did some work with African-American women as well, but primarily with Latinas, recognizing that most of the work again had been done with white women. And so when you think, when people who are familiar with binge eating disorder thinking about it, or even if you Google image binge eating, most of the pictures are like a, a white woman sitting in front of a bunch of food. I mean, that's literally the visual on Google. Oh um, yeah. And so what that translates into in real life is that that is the, the sort of image or the thought that most providers, medical doctors and other types of providers are going to have as well. Um, and so what we found from some of our research is that Latinas were not necessarily binging behave like the behavior didn't look the same way that it looked for white women. So the kind of stereotype is um, the like pizza, chips, ice cream alone at night on the couch watching, you know, a sitcom on TV or something like that. And does that happen? Absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. But what we found and, and what some other work has found is that Latina women may not be binging kind of alone at night on the chips and ice cream, but they might be overeating or, or having loss of control eating in the context of a family meal, knowing that in, in Latinx culture that um, eating as a family and preparing foods for others and kind of um, eating if, if someone in your family, your mom or grandma or aunt prepares food that you show up and eat it, even if you just ate, you know, at the other relative's house 10 minutes ago. Um, and so those sort of, of cultural and familial patterns of eating are really important and, and impact the behavior that can become disordered. And so that needs to be um, acknowledged so that so that we can appropriately diagnose and treat and support diverse individuals such as Latina women, as an example, um, who are really struggling with, with eating. Um, and then of course, you know, that can impact 
weight and cardiometabolic risk and, and all sorts of other things that can become, you know, a cascade effect of, of problems. Yeah. And just like for the provider or even the individual being able to, to know that the picture of an eating disorder, binge eating, or any eating disorder does not look just like the one picture that we show of it, or like, and often the stereotype is that like a very thin white woman. And, and maybe sometimes like with binge eating, it may or may not be depicted in the thin way, even though there's a lot of restriction happening in binge eating disorder. That's like the most common myth too. Mm -hmm. I think even people that I work with, they're like, I'm not restricting. And it's like, well, let's talk about it. And I mean, they are in some way, shape or form, Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, being able to, in fact, I just edited and listened to an interview that's coming out. It'll come out before this one with Rachel Rickabon. She was describing this idea of like struggling with the eating disorder for so long and not realizing it was even possible for her to struggle because she'd only seen it depicted one way, which is like Mm. what typically white women, or at least that's the stereotype and how we need individuals to know that it can look, it can happen in all body sizes, all Mm -hmm. races, all sexual orientations, all diverse types of people. And then also helping providers to understand that because that's typically where it can be hopefully Mm -hmm. noticed. Um, And then Mm -hmm. of course, so yeah, even in our discussion, it's like the treatment adaptations are very important, but even more so we can't treat something we don't know is occurring. Yeah. And I, I, the other thing I would add that I spend a lot of time thinking about um, as a health psychologist working with folks that have a lot of cardiometabolic conditions. So type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, heart failure, um, often folks have more than one medical condition is that in, in my opinion, based on my understanding of the science that it, somebody doesn't need to have a diagnosable eating disorder for it to be a problem, right? Like Mm -hmm. these symptoms are distressing. They're emotionally exhausting and taxing. They are physically exhausting and taxing. They make it harder to manage health conditions that are already a lot of work and, and mental energy to manage. And so I think, yeah, really thinking about assessment and treatment in a culturally sensitive way is, is really important so that we're preventing further problems and, and really supporting people. And again, managing their health and having good quality of life. It doesn't need to be a, an eating disorder per se, mm-hmm. um, for it to kind of matter or be relevant or addressed. Right. Cause most of the time, in fact, it doesn't fit to the criteria of an eating disorder. Like the vast majority of time, if someone does come to see a psychologist, we might diagnose eating disorder, not otherwise specified, which is a catch-all for, it could be grazing or what people call emotional eating or subjective binge eating where someone might feel out of control, but they're not eating that much, but there is that shame and guilt associated. Mm -hmm. And yeah, absolutely. And that's like, I don't know, what is it? It's like, that's like, at least I feel like I'm going to just pull a number out of nowhere, but like, I feel like that's like 70, 80% of what people struggle with, although they may not always come into contact with a provider who sees it that way. So that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in the work that I do, um, you know, not to get too, too down the, the weight rabbit hole, but working, I, I am an assistant professor of surgery. I work in the department of surgery. And so the, the nature of some surgical interventions is that weight or BMI, even though I don't particularly care for that metric, like does impact 
who can get certain treatments, who can get certain surgeries because of um, what is understood as, as risk factor and sort of risk cutoff when it comes to body size. Um, and so if we can support people, again, if they are trying to change their body size to meet criteria for a treatment that they want, like these are important things to be addressing. Yeah, I'm right. And supporting autonomy means like giving people accurate information and, and hopefully trying to change systems that marginalize and don't give people access to treatments that would benefit yeah. them solely mm-hmm. based on body size. That's like a systemic level, but then also as that change is hopefully occurring slowly, right? Like there's still the reality of right now. And the reality mm-hmm. is there are a ton of procedures that require weight loss prior to surgery, which mm-hmm. I would most mostly not agree with. I, I, I don't know all the science to speak to every single specific situation, but I think that's a problem and it's also a reality. And so, yeah, to support autonomy means helping people achieve their goal in the way that works for them. And yeah. Yeah. Um, any, I want to get to like our motivation questions that we ask everyone, but are there any other things that you want to share with, with people, um, that maybe, I know we talked about a lot of different things today, but any main takeaways you want people to know about the fields like lifestyle medicine, health psych, or these topics we've been touching on today? Yeah. I mean, I I think it's just exciting to get to talk about health psychology and lifestyle medicine. I, I mean, I'm sure you've you've done a lot of educating people already on this podcast, which is amazing. And, and just thinking about that, there are, there are people out there that are really passionate about that, about this sort of thing. And, and there can be some degree of privilege to have access to a health psychologist or a lifestyle medicine provider, but um, hopefully this gives hope to sort of look, look for resources or, or to seek, you know, care from providers that have this type of expertise that, um, I think hopefully kind of lifestyle and, and health psychology is the, the way of the future. Um, and, and just yeah. really, again, thinking <laughs> about quality of life and, um, and, and creating good quality of life for everybody. And so I, I think there are some really good resources out there, um, particularly on the, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine website has a lot of free resources if that's of interest to anybody. Nice. And yeah. uh, Society, Society of Behavioral Medicine also has some really good um, public facing, you know, kind of very readable resources touching on some of these topics. Nice. Yeah, I think that that's, I think the thing that strikes me in this conversation as you're talking, it's making me remember that like for me, I am always thinking like none of us really get, uh, we get a lot of training that's weight centric. And also most professionals that I talk to are willing and, and ready to move away from that and, and already are, or, and so it's like, we're all on this like journey of learning and unlearning most of the time, just because like, there's a lot of stuff that we were taught growing up that are unhelpful weight and eating related. And also aside of just like as women and as professionals. And so I think mm-hmm. just remind, like, like you said, there's a, there's cool, exciting things happening in different fields. And also there's a lot of individual professionals who are willing to have these conversations and look at where are we missing the mark and where can we improve? Um, and you know, you just being one example of, of that. And, and so I think feeling hopeful about that and, and hopefully building on that momentum over time. Yeah. And I think it's really exciting too, to see, um, some of these things 
being introduced to medical students. Like that just makes me really optimistic for the future that medical students early in their training are being introduced to, to lifestyle, to health psychology, to some of these behavior change, behavioral medicine theories. And so, you know, I think as often leaders in healthcare, like that's such an important foundational education or thinking about, um, culinary medicine and, and applying mm-hmm. kind of, you know, cooking doctors actually cooking with their patients or prescribing recipes. And there's just some really cool stuff that, that makes me very hopeful for things to come. Right. And it doesn't have to be like, I'm sort of in the anti-diet space and will plan to stay there. And you can be in that space and also support like evidence-based information, which is like, here's what's helpful. And like, there's so many cool things. So I think a lot of people are like, well, if I'm not on the diet and not weight loss focused, what do I do? And like too weight loss focused, but, and it's like, there's all these cool things that you can learn and, and hopefully there'll be more resources disseminated to actual communities, but there are like tons of things to learn and grow that are not like a diet, like being on a diet, it's still our diet. (laughs) So just to be clear. Yeah. yeah. How we eat. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, all right, great. Well, so in terms of our motivation questions, what is one thing that you have truly intrinsic motivation for? So you do it for the inherent satisfaction. Uh, you either enjoy it, find it challenging or satisfying in its own right. Um, I love to cook. So, so thinking about food and thinking about kind of just nutrition and nutrition for myself and my family, I I love cooking. I love making up recipes. I love the farmer's market. I have a farm share, like a produce box that gets delivered to me every week. Like, um, I I just absolutely favorite meal to cook. Oh gosh. That's a really good question. (laughs) I'm not sure I can pick a favorite, but I'll, I'll give you One two of your things. Favorites. So okay, my mom two. makes a really good vegetable lasagna. Mm-hmm. Um, so like all sorts of veggies, but cheese and noodles and all that. And then my, I'd say my single favorite food in the world is just like a really good slice of watermelon in mm, the summer. Okay, nice. That's, <laughs> yeah, I like it. We've been getting some good watermelons lately too. So it is pretty good when you get an actual good one. Some of them are so disappointing. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. So motivated to, to cook meals that, um, that I think serve me and serve my body. That's awesome. Have you always been that way? For the most part. Yeah. I've just, I've always been interested in cooking. You know, I think what I've cooked obviously has changed over time and, and my food philosophy and, and, you know, my finances and what I've had access to, of course, has changed over time also. But, um, yeah, I mean, I was like, I remember as a kid, I would make like ramen noodles, not which is like not great for you, but uh, from a sodium perspective, but you know, ramen noodles in the little package, but I would not use the packet. And I would like pull all of these spices from my parents' cabinet and just like make up my own ramen. And I thought it was very cool. Yeah. Fancy (laughs) chef Alyssa in the kitchen. (laughs) It was not fancy. It was like me dumping like garlic powder and whatever else from the pantry. I love it. That's great great. though. No, that's great to have that. I did not love cooking and I still am working on it, but it's getting a little better at times. (laughs) Um, And what about from our, from a should to a choose to motivation question? So an example of a behavior that was always a should for you that you struggled to do, but you figured out a way to kind of do it more consistently, um, either because you value it or, you know, it's part of your identity, even if you maybe don't always love it. Mm -hmm. I'd say 
I can probably say two. So the first one I'd say is, is exercise. Um, I was a collegiate athlete. I was always used to be very active. Um, so it was an interesting shift when I started graduate school and sort of the retired, if you will, from collegiate athletics to exercise in a way that was my choice. I mean, I guess swimming was, mm-hmm. was my choice, but it sort of became like a job, especially as a, a college athlete on scholarship it it just my my intrinsic extrinsic motivation pressure relationship changed with it over time Um, and so it's been an interesting journey over the past several years of kind of figuring out um, exercise and what I like and what serves me and you know when I've had more access to group fitness which is something I really like versus you know trying to figure out how to exercise at home during the pandemic and mm-hmm. um so it's been very up and down but I I do overall feel better when I'm regularly physically active and um or at least walking so mm-hmm. this morning I I didn't work out this morning but I took my dog for a walk and it was a lovely morning and so uh, it's something that I value and that makes me feel good, but it's always a bit of a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then the bonus one I'd, I'd say is uh, I'm w- really working on meditation. I know the science. I know the benefits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do too. Necessary. I don't do it. <laughs> I maybe one day will. I just don't right now. I took MB- MBSR a number of years ago. Mindfulness-based okay. stress reduction for the listeners. Mm-hmm. So yeah. It's, uh, it's so good. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. Maybe one day. Mm-hmm. It would probably help with my com- self-compassion work, <laughs> which is also an active uh-huh. work in progress. Of course. Yes. I actually did. I, I kind of got more into it. I was doing pretty good at the beginning of the pandemic because they, mm-hmm. um, Headspace offered a free subscription to medical providers. And yep. so I, I, I was really struggling to sleep at the beginning of the pandemic. I was just so anxious. And so I, I was meditating quite a bit at night and it really helped. And then, you know, life gets in the way and you stop doing it. And, and that's the, you know, us providers struggle with things too. Absolutely. Oh yes, <laughs> that we do. <laughs> um, well, it sounds good. And is there one final takeaway you want people to take away from our conversation as we wrap up? Oh, takeaway. Um, I, I guess I, for any health behavior change that you want to make anything you want to change in your, in your life, I would first and foremost ask why, what's your, why, what drives you, what's important to you? Why would you want to make that change? And, and also recognizing that change is really hard. It sounds easy theoretically, but, um, it's really, really difficult to put into practice. And so it's okay to, to struggle, to have setbacks. Um, but knowing that why, why you choose to do something, why you would keep going and get back up when things are hard is, is really important. And, um, again, speaks to that values and and quality of life focus that I tend to take. Yeah. Love that. Such good advice. Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Bellis. So excited to be able to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. So let's go over some main takeaways from this conversation, because I think there's a lot. So first of all, as we basically have tried to make the case, health psychology is super cool. Uh, You know, as health psychologists, we are not biased at all. It's just an objective fact. No, in all seriousness, we, you know, Dr. Vell and I believe strongly that there is a lot to be gained from understanding the psychology of humans, why they do what they do, our beliefs, 
attitudes and behaviors because for me this is the kind of underscores everything we're talking about with why an anti-diet approach can be helpful but also really confusing for a lot of people an anti-diet approach can be really helpful if it helps you to unhook from the beliefs that your body's broken and bad and problematic and shifting towards a belief that your body you know, the system set your body up for failure and it can be trusted. It can be, it can take time, but we can learn to retrust our body. We can learn to retrust ourselves with our health. We can learn to reclaim our health because there's so many systems working against us. And so if we can understand that and unpack that, that can be incredibly empowering. And so, but if you interpret the anti-diet approach as like you can never never want to lose weight or never want to improve your health in that way and that doing so is bad, then you're going to be confused as to how that might actually help you. So again, it's it's all about how we think about it that matters whether or not a certain approach resonates with us or a certain approach is helpful to us. And so that's why I say like find find people to follow that their approach resonates with you and it feels true to your experience. It feels true to your values and what matters to you. And um, as always, it, it depends. And, and really how we think and feel about something, our eating habits, our exercise patterns, anything we're doing for our health is almost always more important in the long term with, than any given single behavior. We can get so fixated on what you did or didn't eat or what you did or didn't do with exercise. And really we need to zoom out and look at the big picture. I, as you know, I'm way more concerned about your relationship with food, your relationship with exercise, how you feel about it. That's going to be more predictive long-term of how things go with your health than, um, than again, whether you exercise for zero minutes, five minutes, or an hour today. So, And then we talk about this idea of food as medicine and whether it's helpful or harmful. And this is just a perfect example of how it depends, right? It depends on how you as the individual interprets that phrase. If you hear food as medicine and you feel shame or pressure that there's some moral obligation that you should eat this way, and if you don't, you're bad, you're a bad person, you don't care about your health, you don't care about your family, then that's clearly unhelpful. Or can this idea of food as medicine feel empowering and hopeful? For some people it does, for some people it doesn't. But we need to understand, for you as an individual, you need to understand how the messages you're hearing are impacting you. And if the ones that you're hearing aren't helpful, we need to seek out different messages. And, you know, the social media or like who you follow for your health is going to be one way to seek that out. Hopefully also over time you can find healthcare providers that that give a message that helps you to feel empowered because these are things that make a huge difference. So again, it really depends. And uh, I think this conversation with Dr. Vela really highlighted that for me. And, um, and, and then, you know, to the next point, this field of lifestyle medicine holds a lot of promise, I think, as Dr. Vela talked about. It's a really new field. It's emerging and it's creating more space for these discussions it's also an interdisciplinary approach, and it's including a lot of different fields, um, you know, medicine, nutrition, psychology. A lot of different healthcare providers can get certified in lifestyle medicine and um, receive that board certification. But 
I think that, you know, this is one example of a field that is, is really trying to be more innovative and kind of fight against some of the systems. I strongly believe that the diet and weight loss industry very much needs to be fought against. The food industry also is one that needs to be fought against. These are very lucrative money-making systems and they do not want to be changed. And so, you know, the idea of providing people with autonomy means sharing what impacts disease risk and what doesn't. And um, I think the, from what I've seen of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, I've been um, excited about the work that they're doing. So in the show notes, we have links to the resources page if you want more resources about lifestyle medicine, uh, as well as the Society of Behavioral Medicine, they have some resources for people if you're looking to understand this at a broader level. And then we also really need to be thinking about diversity and representation when we're considering health. We've touched on this on this podcast before, but eating disorders or disordered eating in particular happen in all races, all body shapes, and all sizes, and they can look different across different populations. So we've made some progress in this area. Actually, as I was writing up this episode, I did a Google search for binge eating disorder, and there are more diverse pictures now than we kind of talked about when Dr. Bella was doing this research in the past. There was very little diversity and representation. So I think there's some improvement. We have a long ways to go in terms of people understanding, even providers understanding that they need to be looking for and screening for these concerns in all people and that it can look different ways. And so continuing to have these conversations and and provide education is essential because if what we're doing doesn't apply to a variety of individuals, it's only going to help, often help people that already have more privilege and more access to good health care and we need to really be thinking about how we can disseminate or get these concepts out to a wider audience or a wider um, group of folks. And finally, I saved this point for last um, because I think the idea of using nutrition for improving our mood is 100% worth considering because if you think about how motivation works. A lot of times when I talk to people about exercise and how the focus on weight loss or body size strips them from any love for exercise, like I only walk on the treadmill to burn calories, you know, versus finding an exercise I really like, people usually get that, right? They're like, oh yeah, it's taken away my love for exercise. And it's not always an easy fix. But if you look at the ways that exercise becomes internal or autonomous, you typically hear people describing, I do it because it's my therapy. I get a lot of, I really enjoy it, or I get a lot of relief um, from stress when I exercise, or I find found a way to incorporate exercise in my life that is fun or challenging. And so one thing to consider is when we strip away the weight loss or diet focus from our eating habits, and when we take it away from being a should, when we learn about looking at sort of positive nutrition, the field that we talked about today of nutritional psychiatry, this idea that what we eat can impact our mood and can potentially be part of a treatment for depression, anxiety, as we talked about in this interview, it's very emerging research. But we don't have to wait for the research to come out to say 
for us, and this is really what I think intuitive eating does is help the individuals say like, move away from shoulds and just do experiments without judgment and notice how they specifically are impacted. But sometimes we do need to look at data and science to look at the evidence. And as we've said on this podcast, if there's one body of evidence that shows the most promise for all, most, if not all conditions, it's plant forward, more diversity of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, more, you know, whole plant foods does not have to be rigid. But if you're able to look at that as an experiment and try it and just see how you feel and see if you do in fact feel, let's say for example, you notice when you eat a heavy lunch, like let's say a burger and fries for lunch, you feel pretty down or you feel low energy later that day versus, I don't know, uh, a salad with beans on it or something that if you notice the second meal tends to help you feel more energized throughout the day more engaged in whatever you're doing that afternoon that's going to be a lot more internal motivation than to just say you know I should do this this is the healthy choice this is what a good person does right it's really starting to look at um when we strip away again the diet mentality or the diet rules, it's just really looking at like how do you feel and there's no right or wrong answer but when we say intuitive eating or I say like the concept of intu- intuition does use your your brain to be thinking through some of these things and the reality is that when we, you know, kind of seek out information about the eating patterns that help people feel the best and live the longest, they tend to be these plant predominant, plant forward eating patterns. And so just, yeah, saying like, well, maybe I'll do an experiment. And um, I think it's worth considering if it's something that you're like, I want to, so many of you tell me like, I want to feel good. I want to, um, I, I don't feel good in my current body. And some of that is body shame and internalized diet culture BS, but some of it is that, you know, you, there's so much pressure to not eat the quote unquote bad foods. Um, we got to take away that pressure first, but it's also okay to engage in health promoting nutrition. And so, you know, it's a tough balance. I think this, this concept is the one that people struggle with the most. So if you're struggling with this, you are a hundred percent not alone. And it's really, really important that you work with a professional who can help you determine where kind of where the motivation comes from. But the one thing I will say is you don't have to have perfect motivation to, to do these experiments, right? Like you don't have to get away from all of the external body shame motivation to still say, okay, I'm still going to do this, have this meal that I think is rooted in really what I think is best for me. It's, it's a self-care behavior to, um, kind of invest in, I don't know, eating this more plant-based meal and just seeing how I feel, seeing how it impacts my mood. So that is my my takeaway. And it, it's just something that I think has promised and that we want to kind of, we'll probably explore more on this podcast. How do we do this in a non-diet way? Um, but I definitely, I know there's a, a good way to do it. It's just about being really honest with yourself in the process of where you're at with 
if you are recovering from an eating disorder or recovering from disordered eating or just have a kind of strained relationship with food, we certainly want to be cautious about this, but I don't think it means you have to not engage in um, some experiments of like, how can I feel good in my body as soon as possible? There's, it doesn't have to be in a pressuring way, but you deserve to feel good in your body. You deserve to eat in a way that helps you live a life you love and helps you thrive. And so they, I think we can balance this. I don't think it has to be, you know, anti-diet. It doesn't have to be, you know, you, you never focus on health promoting behaviors. We just have to be careful with it. So that being said, Thank, I want to thank so much Alyssa Vela for coming and talking with us today and sharing her knowledge in this area. And I hope you guys have a wonderful week. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.